You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Rob Nuds. He is currently the managing editor of Fratello.com. Hey Rob. Hi mate, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It has been um, a long time coming and doing this show. I invited you over a year ago um, and now we're finally getting around to doing it. You're someone who I've shared a lot of time having conversations with over the years. So we've basically done the equivalent of many, many shows already. And now we're doing one for a bit of an audience. So um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, well, it's about time. I mean, it's a great pleasure to talk to you and in this format as well. It's brilliant. And yeah, sorry, it took me a year to get here. It's it's okay. Nothing in the watch industry happens very quickly, which is something that you intimately know because you have had so many different jobs in the watch <laughs> industry. And I want to... I, I need to explain some context here and why that's let's just say it's 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 uncommon. Most people who find themselves in the watch industry find from one vector, if you will, uh, engineering, sales, marketing, and they stay in that role, meaning you wouldn't have someone who's like, I entered as a watchmaker, but look, now I'm decorating storefronts. Like that just doesn't normally happen. Um much fewer people are kind of interested in the watch industry and process in general. And that is you. You're sort of like a watch industry. Um, you might call it an aficionado. Someone might call it a watch industry nerd. You know, they're all good things. But you're like, you seem so interested in this industry. And you've had, I don't even, how many different jobs within it at this point? Good grief. Uh, job titles, I have, I have no idea. I would, I, I broadly say that I've worked in, uh, you know, behind the scenes, in the middle of the scenes, and in front of the scenes, like, and had roles in each each of those parts. That's of the a good industry. way of putting it. You've <laughs> yeah. made watches, you've sold watches, you've written about watches, and a lot of different things related to those things. Yeah, I guess that's, that's a really good way of putting it. Do you find many other people in your travels that have also jumped to different uh, parts of the industry, or, or would you agree it's uncommon? I mean, it's certainly uncommon. I wouldn't say it's entirely unique. Uh, I have met one or two people who have held a couple of the positions that I've held in the past. It, the problem tends to be that the personality types that are attracted to these different roles in the industry are almost contradictory. And it takes a bit of, um, well, you call me what, a nerd? That's fine. An obsessive is what I say. <laughs> An industry obsessive. Or like, you see, the thing is, I'm, I'm trying to use the hip term, Rob. Is that, is cool that now. Is that didn't you hear? Well, I don't yeah, know. I have no, I have no idea. Uh, I know. I neither do I. People make fun of me. They're like, all right, you don't understand social conventions. They're like, I'm busy processing <laughs> other things. <laughs> yeah, which doesn't make you sound like a computer at all. Just, uh, we're just, all, we're all computers. We are big, big, fleshy computers. And I've been turning my computer towards um, all parts of the industry because just like a watch goes together and all the components have to mesh in the right way for it to function optimally. So too does the industry have all these different moving parts. And I, I like to I like to see how things work, you know, and there are elements of the industry that seem like they are worlds and worlds apart. And indeed they are, but they can't exist without one another. So I just dedicated my life to trying okay, to understand Okay, so here's that. the thing. You're either so intrigued with the industry, you can't wait to learn more, or you're so incensed with things that you put experience into that you move on because you're just, you're sick of it. Which one is it? Can it be both? Um, Maybe. I think it's a little bit it's, of both. It's realistic to be both, right? 
I think it's probably more the former. I don't think I've ever really gotten bored with any part of the uh, job I've, jobs I've been doing. I think that I just had the opportunity to move on at the right time and I took it rather than dithering and wondering if I should stay because every time you get a chance to make a, a lateral move into a different lane that you never expected you'd be driving in, I think it's worth taking it. I've learned something about pretty much everyone in the watch industry is successful. It doesn't matter what background that they have. All of them are very, very hard workers. These are people that like, you know, basically have like an itch they they can't stop scratching. They're always doing something. They're restless. They always want more. If they have the opportunity, they will definitely take it to do new things and learn new things like designers, CEOs, salespeople, writers, whoever it is. It's those people that like make up their careers as they go along and, and, and try to do as much as possible that succeed and literally no one else but them. Yeah, well, to me, that's not a surprise because I think the, the most integral thing about the watchmaking industry is that it is an industry of emotions and passion. And I think being too calculated about everything or trying to look at it from a black and white business perspective is never going to yield excellent results. It's strange because these are incredibly, well, usually expensive products that we're talking about. But the decision, <laughs> the decisions of like what those products should be and who they should be marketed towards is, is one of the heart. And you find even at the very top levels of watchmaking, people making decisions without much rationale behind them, but a great deal of touch and experience. And that only now, comes... Now, you, I know what you mean when you say these are de decisions of the heart. And what you're trying to say is that if you are trying to anticipate what a successful product is going to be, there's no calculus which is going to no, get you there. No. You have to have some type of intuition right. that you've developed as well as some good luck to get you there. You definitely so need luck, yeah. You need these, these sort of uh, egotistical, decisive types at the top of this ladder or else nothing is ever going to get done. Yeah, exactly. There's no formula. There's no way you can break it down. You can learn little little formula like throughout your career and you can apply them when it makes sense to apply them. But the overarching decisions, the big ones, really, they're terrifying, I think, to look at from the outside in because they're based on the whims of a few people who really understand and, the industry. And because we're talking about you know European business entities, they're ruthlessly unforgiving if there's failure. So everyone <laughs> at every angle is trying to self-aggrandize, you know, and they were figuring this out 15 years before Instagram ever existed. I mean, every single time we ask anybody a question, this is right, it's going great. We're selling out of everything. Wow. We have, we have all the best problems. Like we can't make enough watches or we have too much money to deal with. That's what everyone says all the time, which we know isn't true because there's so much bad stuff going on. But, um, try to explain a little bit to the outside world, the, the absolute terror that people in this industry have of being look, being looked at as as being even even slightly a failure. Oh well, it can be uh, all consuming, and it, it's a very unhealthy thing. Actually, I, I know that it has spurred some people to greatness, but um, in reality, it is just um, all consuming on occasion. You just find yourself agonizing over the details of a project, or over a watch, over a content strategy, for example. To you know, to the point at which. None of it makes any sense to you anymore because you've overthought it and you, you really... Uh... Is that necessary though? Like, is that amount of obsessive over-planning? Because um, I think it goes back to what we said before. There are investors in many spaces and many businesses 
today's world, and the watch industry is definitely one of them. And investors are not artists. They're not patrons of the arts. They are business people that want a return on their investment. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to spend money unless there's some type of reasonable assurance that they're going to make you know, it back and, and then some. Um, when in reality, passion projects are ones of high risk because there's no way of predicting how you'll do. And so they want predictability, which means you can't do anything creative because if you want to do something new, you're never going to have any data to show that it's worked before because yep. there's no evidence. Yeah, that's a huge problem. That is a huge problem, getting people to do things that they haven't done before because this industry is so conservative when it comes to taking those kind of chances. Yeah, they leave a lot of money on the table. But it, the, the problem is this, is it's, I, I honestly, I have to blame the watchmakers because the watchmakers need to have the the fortitude to say, no, we do not want to accept the wrong money. It's not the investor's fault. They always blame the investors. All the investors make it so hard. No, you went to someone understanding their deal, understanding how they wanted to make money, and you sold them a bill of goods that wasn't true. You should have said, you know what? You do this because you love it. You need to be able to afford to lose all this money. And if you have a success, you're going to have the world's best parties and have everybody want to come and you're going to love it. And worst case scenario, oh, you tried something cool, but you know it's not really what you, you, st you st sort of stuck your fortune on. And that's the problem. They're asking for money from the wrong people. And you've seen it. You see some of these watchmakers take money from absolutely the wrong people. And over the last 20 years, it's destroyed many, many talented people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's no no way of denying it. And um, to be pointless to uh, people feel the pressure. They make bad decisions. They take money from the wrong sources, like you're saying, then they hand over their agency. And once you do that, you know, you, you're basically on a road to your own demise, I think. Now, you and I have learned a lot about sort of what to avoid. And one of the things I realized is when people make these ballsy decisions, they go into it quite blind. And, and I guess the point I'm trying to make is the more sides of this industry we look at, imagine like it's a big crystal and you and I, because of all the things we've seen and you a lot more in some areas than me and me in a lot more in some areas than you, we, we see a sort of the weaknesses and things like that of the industry. And we see a lot of the things to avoid. What are some of the things that you definitely need to do? Like, you know, we talked about being a hard worker. There's so many things to avoid in the watch industry. What is it that, based upon your experience, are just the must-haves of any kind of success in the watch industry? Well, for me, I don't move too quickly. This industry doesn't move quickly at all. Um, it hasn't done for, for years. It will probably continue to move at a glacial pace for as long as it exists. And I, <laughs> I try and to, to even understand that you need to live in it and be like, oh, yeah. that's what slow means. That is slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is slow, and patience <laughs> is key. I mean, you, you, I, I, maybe not the most patient man in the world. Um, I certainly maybe not in my personal life, but professionally, I, I've learned to be incredibly detached and to observe and to not panic and to not rush anything out. Uh, to make sure that I'm sure that I believe in the project myself. It doesn't always mean that I get universal agreement with people around me, and that's been true of every position I've been in. But I need, I need, to, be, I need to be convinced. And if I'm convinced, then I throw myself into something wholeheartedly, 100%. And yeah, I work very hard. Um, that kind of effort, it can be unhealthy sometimes, uh, in, in always physically and emotionally unhealthy. Um, but it does often yield results, and that's why it's so difficult to stop. I think the difference, the difference is, you said before, or you asked me, is it worth planning things so precisely when you can't guarantee anything? And maybe it 
90% the same if you plan obsessively or, or don't plan obsessively, or maybe 99% the same. But it's those little tiny things, those tiny little gaps, those like 1% gain here, 1% gain there, the sort of thing that you you end up having in your locker well, if you well, spend a lot on. of time. Let's not confuse refinement and strategy. What I'm saying is that there's no way of identifying a working strategy. And what you're saying is it's worth it to take the time to refine. So yeah. we, we these are these are different things. Well, yes and no. I mean, refining a working strategy is is kind of similar in the way of refining. But it's like could product. Picasso have come up with a working strategy to make a masterpiece? He could have <laughs> said, "I'm going to try these things and maybe we'll come up with something." But it's you're talking about birthing something new. You're taking something and you're combining right. elements that have right. existed, and you're coming, you're, you're you're coming to the world and be like, "Hey, you like all this stuff before? Here's a new child of the themes that you like." No, not necessarily. And you don't know if it's going to be pretty. Well, it could be a composite of many things that have gone before, because like being able to refine a strategy doesn't mean to be able to refine it so it's replicable. You don't have to be able to pick it up and drop it into another project and just use exactly the same things. But you always cherry pick elements of like things you've done before, conversations you've had here and there, comments. And feedback that you get from previous projects are the most important thing to me because I, I, I'm deaf to praise, completely deaf to it, and I, I really struggle to sort of celebrate any of the uh, the things we, we we we've done in the last few years that are worthy of celebration. I'm always on to the next thing and always thinking, man, we could have done this better, we could have done that better, and it's a very frustrating way to be. But you know, uh, you know what's funny? It's funny you mention that because. <clears throat> This is the celebration industry. People buy watches when they want to celebrate something. Yet the people in the industry work so hard, they don't take that much time to stop and celebrate anything. No. Well, we're always on the go. And as slow as the industry's as slow as the industry is in the way that it moves, the people within it are moving very like rapidly and doing a lot of things all the time. And just Oh man, the effort! It takes. It's like it's like when there was all this political pushback against you know uh, traveling internationally on jets and stuff like that. I'm just like, oh boy, that's not good for the watch industry. <laughs> like, we need to be moving on the planes all the time. Yeah. And you know the the ability to connect society with the speed of you know even though it's not really that fast, given how fast they could go. But like you know, just jet jet travel, being able to get pretty much anywhere in a day. You know that has opened up cross-cultural pollination in a way that's been so amazing. The sort of idea that don't do that anymore and get there slower, it's actually going to make it so that cultures can't mix as much. And, you know, we've seen the sort of rise in consumer travel coincide with the rise of the luxury watch industry. And we've seen the result of all these different interests coming together from pop culture to just history and things like that being combined with Swiss watchmaking in something that's amazing. I mean, think about all the pop culture stuff which has entered Switzerland or or Japan and things like that that they never would have thought about doing. And now it's all mixing together, coming up with some of the greatest watches of all time today because of the speed of travel. And so going backwards, you know, could harm that, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, it was, it was a very difficult time for the industry not to complain too much about it because, of course, other people were facing much more significant challenges than we were working remotely. But it was very strange. It was just a complete culture shift. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad to be back on the road in a sense. I mean, I'm sure you kind of feel the same. Maybe it's uh, when it started again, it really started. And I've been flying all over the place in seven cities this week, which is a bit too much, to be honest. But there you go. Yeah, there's going to be that initial because of the bottleneck. So yeah, it's going to yeah, be this yeah. craziness and then it's going to slow down again. Yeah, I'm looking for it to sort of 
normalizing, shall we say? I know. I got I got invited to London like two times in the period of a month. I was like, what's going on? <laughs> I can't I'm, I can't go to either of them actually. Oh, well, that's a you shame. know, that's a real shame. Are you, gonna, you know, I, but I, I Dubai and uh, hopefully I'll be able to go back to Europe a little bit more because of course you know for in March for Watches and Wonders there's going to be that. Yeah. Uh, but I've been traveling a lot as well, and yeah, I mean, this is you know, if there's anything that this industry produces, it's professional travelers. <laughs> you know, when it comes to like understanding how to navigate travel and airports and restaurants and hotels and services and things like that. And travelers are some of the people that, that buy so many of these watches. I think what I love is that when people like you and me actually get into the role of being able to design some of the today's watches, because oh, yeah. some of them feel really, really hyper relevant, right? Like we never really talk about it, but like there's this, we'll just call it the jet setter. Okay. You know, yep, yep, you're yep. on jets a lot and that's a whole lifestyle. And like the industry is sort of flirted with making watches for this, you know, this, this type of person, but hasn't really created a marketing thing for them yet. I think that, you know, they could do a lot better job of talking to them. Yeah. I mean, there's always, always new avenues to explore. And I, I mean, I, I love that kind of the kind of watch I would always put on a traveler's wrist is the kind of watch I'd wear myself. Because like you say, I do regard myself as a professional traveler. And the little tricks that you learn to make things a little bit easier, like how to pack bags, uh, how to sort of get yourself ready for security as you're passing through, all these things that um, add up over years and years and years. And, and many, many airports visited. I collect airports. Did you know that? I collect them. You collect airports? <laughs> yeah, I collect them. So um, I, I, I'm a bit of a... Well, as you know, you like have like a weird monopoly game. Like, what does that mean? Yeah, kind of. So I, when I was working in the States for Nomos, I was traveling around quite a lot. As you know, I was flying a few times every week and I was visiting all these airports and I thought I'm moving so quickly. I don't have any chance to stop and process what I'm experiencing or what I'm seeing. And I'm going to forget that I've been to half of these places if I don't start keeping a record of it. So I found that there's a website, I'm not, I can't remember what it's called, something like R airports or something. And it allows you to track. Like you just fit, you, you type in the airport you've been to and you can add it to your list. You can put a star on it so you can keep track of how many you visited. Wasn't this like Foursquare? Something like that, right? So I became like obsessed with uh, tracking my airport visiting history. It, you, so you, you as a native, um, you know, Manchesterian, <laughs> yeah, were traveling to the United States a lot. What, what did you learn about going to some of these towns in America as, you know? someone who's not American, you know, tell me a little bit of my own country. Oh, well, I mean, firstly, your country is basically 50 countries kind of stitched together with a couple of them offshore, obviously. Yep. Um, the culture difference between... Maybe not 50, maybe like 20, come on. Yeah, okay, like, so the regions are like so distinct and, you know, each state or group of states, if you want, like has its own microculture and its own uh, tastes and... The way of talking to one another is different. Uh, certain um, purchasing practices are different as well. Because I mean, I was working in sales when I was in the states, so it really sounds like you're describing Europe, by the way. <laughs> well, there's not much difference, really, is there? I mean, people people say, "Oh, Europe, there's so many countries in such a small space." And I'm like, "Well, realistically, we've just we've given these sort of areas different names, and we look at them differently." But there isn't much difference at all between the way it works. Like, there's no border between. Germany and the Czech Republic, you know, the, the cultures bleed into one another. So I live in Dresden, um, only only a handful of miles away from the border to the Czech Republic. And obviously, as you leave Berlin and drive south towards Dresden and then continue to Prague, you don't just see this hard cutoff point when you cross the border. It's like, oh, that's the Czech Republic and that's Germany. There's a crossover and it's no different. Well, not anymore. States. 
Well, yeah, 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 true, true. For a while, it was a little bit, um, a little bit hard to get in there. But no, it's all open back up again now. So that's all cool. So, but it's, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, Seattle is is miles apart from Miami, literally and uh, figuratively. So, I mean, what did I learn? I mean, so I had a ba- massive, massive advantage when I started working in America, and that was that I was a huge America file, and I had been ever since I was a kid. I'm a massive fan of American sport, as you know, um, and I. I had that so I had that in 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 the bag like I could use that wherever I went I knew what, what the local teams were I knew their records their history you know uniforms rivalries and it was an immediate um touch point I could always like connect with whoever I was with you know if I'm in Minnesota I'm like oh hey god did you see the Vikings game last night and they're like oh man you you uh you follow football and I'm like yeah I follow football and then we can have a proper conversation about it and that very quickly like builds a rapport and so I left yeah, on it's that a way in the, it's a way in the door it is. And it can be anything, you know, whatever your interest is. Um, it just And happened. this is because you genuinely like sports? Or you just really like connecting with strangers? I am a huge sports fan, a massive sports okay. fan. Sports sports is my first love. Watchmaking is my second. Like I, uh, Okay, yeah, everyone has some, like, original nerdy thing that had nothing to do with watches. And, they, yeah. you know, they right, just turned right, right. into timepieces. Because as an adult, you know, being into whatever it is, action figures, is just, you know, it's not going to fly. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. So watches is kind of an acceptable adult obsession to have. And uh, I, I approach it much the same way as I approach sport obsessively. And um, I am a statistician. So I follow like the statistical performance of American football teams and really, and, really. And that look- makes you a statistician? Well, yeah, it really does the way I do it. Like it's, it's, it's pretty scary. Like I have boards. And what what, do, you, what do you do with this information? Now, you know, you've, you've <laughs> went ahead and you've, you've acquired all these statistics <laughs> of games that you have no involvement in. Um, <laughs> I just, I'm just curious, what type of extra predictive value does this give you in life? Um, it's an interesting question because the more I analyze it, the more ridiculous I have it, it seems. But um, I, I've always done it since I was a little boy. And um, I love understanding things and trying to see gaps in everything. I look for gaps. Like, so if a running back's coming towards the, the line of scrimmage, he needs, to, he needs to find a gap. He needs to hit that gap as hard and as fast as he can to break through and streak off to great success in the distance. And I see this, I use this, and I have this in an analogy in my head constantly whenever I'm thinking about watchmaking and about the industry and about how to, how to develop and how to, be, uh, how to be exciting and create some interesting news. It's look for the gaps, look for the gaps in society, look for the gaps in the industry, look for the gaps on the field. And so you got to give some examples of how this has manifested itself in the watch space. Well, what, do you, what did you say a minute ago about the jet setting lifestyle and about how the, the, there's not enough like tailored towards those people that there's not enough, um, there's not enough creative ways of doing business and communicating with communities effectively, I think. And brands are very, very scared of being first to do anything because they don't want to look like idiots if it all goes wrong. And Which is funny because no one has ever gotten upset at a brand for trying something and then not doing it anymore. Like no one's been like, remember that time they tried that thing they didn't work and then they went back to the old thing? Yeah, let's never buy from them again. Like that's never happened. Right. That is exactly right. Those things, they don't become <laughs> like like active negative um, opinions in people's minds. They may be passively negative for a short period of time, but the industry moves on and people move on and brands move on. Being creative and taking calculated risks you know you can never be sure of anything of course but that to me is um is something that more brands need to do and right now to give you a practical example of where i see a gap it's um it's listening to communities watch communities it's really understanding that the community wants to come 
yeah, if not behind the curtain, you know, having a little peek around it every so often and having their voices heard. I think that's really, really essential. Explain what you mean by that, because I probably have seen a lot of the same things you've seen, but I've actually come to some strange conclusions about it. I definitely agree that listening is important, but I've seen them do it in dysfunctional ways that leads me to believe maybe it's not always a very good idea. So tell, tell us, tell us what, we, what you mean by they should be listening to the community more. Well, I think that maybe don't let the community lead you in the direction that they want to go, but to take on board what they're saying and actually affect like genuine change about the way your product is either communicated or made available to them. Um, so limited editions obviously raises like a, a, a big discussion point in, in our communities and um, high Give brand some context. So, okay. Like what's, what's some of the discussions about limited editions? So recently, you know, on Fratello, we've been doing uh, these collaborations over the last couple of years. And um, So you have a store and you, and you make designs original to the Fratello store that are sold to, the, to watch buyers, right? Right, exactly. And um, we're quite selective about who we work with. And these projects take many, many months, which of course is a bit difficult because you start, you start these projects um, at one point in the industry and then six, seven, eight, nine 12 months later, you've got to watch and uh, you may have conceived that project in a different climate to the one that you find yourself releasing it into. But that's by the by. So we, we recently had a, uh, a special edition project with Nomos and we did um, a, a Veltzite model, you know, the world timer, um, a panda dial variant of the, uh, of the original design. And we started this project before we'd really had a huge amount of success in this e-commerce world. And we decided to do 25 pieces because we thought that was... Uh, a, a conservative, um, but you know, fair amount. As we developed uh, in this sphere over the ensuing nine months or so, we came to realize that our power in that segment was much, much greater than we had thought. Of course, by that point, it isn't so easy to just pivot and change and say, oh, let's do 100 pieces or let's do 1,000. And uh, the community, when we released it, they were thrilled with the watch so thrilled in fact it sold out in under 10 seconds which is the sort of thing we would have bragged about a year ago and now we find ourselves sort of thinking well you know if it's selling out in 10 seconds it's not not quite enough pieces we need to learn from that and come back with something else that's like you know satisfies the people that weren't able to buy one and they ask a lot of questions they ask us like why didn't you do more can you do more next time why don't you just do an unlimited model why don't you design something for the brand's catalog and some of those things are just not possible. And that isn't me. Why? Well, why can't you design for the catalog? Why can't it be unlimited? So the designing for the catalog would be possible. Absolutely. It's something that brands should do. And that is exactly an example of one of the things I think they should listen to from the community because it's a good idea. And it's very interesting to have a uh, third-party designed watch in the catalog. Because let's face it, a lot of these brands use external designers for their new watch designs anyway. So it's effectively the same thing. It's not like uh, it's not like um, having somebody come in from the outside um, means that you can't design a good watch. You don't have to be in the brand to be on brand at all. Um, but to make something unlimited uh, in terms of like a special release doesn't work unless it is part of the catalog. So we are not a Nomos retailer, okay? Um, there are Nomos retailers all over the world. Uh, Wait, are you so you're not a Nomos retailer? What are you retailer of? We don't carry brands in uh, in the shop regularly. We we have this 
arm specifically for the uh, limited editions. Uh, we we don't actually want to be a retailer uh, for regular products. We have oh, so you're order you're ordering small sets of watches and then you're selling them to your audience. So you're acting like a like a te- like a, a dealer on demand, like when you want to be. Uh, yeah, to a, to a point. Yeah, um, I mean, these are people. These are brands that we've worked with, like in the media forum. You know, where we've we've written about them for years and years and years. Right, but the idea is, hey, let's try an interesting way of making money together. Let's design a product and then sell it to our audience. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like we we want to try and give something back to the audience. I mean, actually, money is not really the focal point. Well, it, it really let, is. Let me let me ask a question. I've been thinking a lot about this. This has to do with limited editions, and it's something I'm just debating in my mind. Um, there's a there's a definite appeal to limited editions, no doubt. There's an appeal, but at the same time. I think there's this sort of pressure on everyone, consumers and people selling them and the brands that sells out right away. And it's like, it's all about this sort of immediate appeal, which really limits the types of projects you do and things like that. Because you and I know that the best products out there took a couple of years, if not longer, to gain some traction and yep. gain awareness. It just takes a while for people to learn about it. Um, things that, that sell out really quick usually mean that um, it's sold to sort of a very narrow audience uh, group. So it sells to you know certain people, but not many people. But things that are more generally acceptable just takes time for people to learn about it. And limited editions are all about like this quick sellout so you can move on to another one, ASAP, which forces people, I think, to buy things that maybe they don't want. And then when you buy a watch you don't want, what do you do? You try to sell it. Then when you get, you get upset because you're like, oh, well, I've spent all this money on my watch uh, and people tell me they go up in value. So then I'm going to try to sell it for, you know, above retail price. And now all of a sudden we're in the problem we are right now where everyone becomes a flipper and people buy these limited edition watches not to own, not to wear, not because they like it, but to get rid of it, which causes an issue in the market because they try to offload it immediately. So then you have these temporary buyers who are trying to move it. And again, I'm just, it seems like the economics um, are kind of counterintuitive in some way. Like having a product that you just release and produce slowly over time for a series of years makes a lot more sense than some of these limited editions. Yes, it does. Um, from a brand's perspective, certainly. Uh, but when you do limited editions with, with a third party, you have a whole different set of. Um, Problems. A third party? Well, we're call us okay, the th- second party, not a retailer. So like you've got a brand. And I'm calling them the first party, I'm calling the retailer a second party, and I'm calling us like a media outlet a third well, party. Well then but you but you would be the second party. Okay, we're the second party in that. But but the, you can't eliminate the retailers from what I'm trying to explain here because a brand can't do an unlimited model with a non official retailer. And they can't even do it with an official retailer because they have a whole retailer network to keep happy. And you can't Firstly, you can't commit from a manufacturing capacity perspective. Like it's literally impossible for like a brand, say, Nomos's size, and I'm using them as an example because it's a practical one. Um, they couldn't produce enough movements. That, in, in... that you have some personal experience at because you worked there. Yeah, right. I worked there for three years and I worked with the retailers on their special edition projects. And we had these conversations then. There's a limit to the capacity of how many pieces of brand wants to produce in these limited shots because they have to prioritize the core collection and they can't really give too much ground to any one retailer. If you do a great special edition, like this one that we had now, um, which was very well received, and the audience says, hey, you know what, maybe there's enough interest in this to sell a thousand pieces. Nomos 
couldn't make a thousand belt sites for one retailer and uh, in in this case us they couldn't do that it's just too many and it boxes out everybody else you know everybody's fighting for a crust in uh, in the brick and mortar retail game these days you know it's competitive and managing those uh, those feelings and those egos for a small brand um with a global retailer network is really difficult and it's incredibly sensitive. And like I say, physically you can't produce um, an unlimited amount. If you opened up an order like for uh, the Panda Dial, for example, and took as many orders as possible, um, it could be reputational death because you could end up with a thousand or 10,000 orders. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. I don't know if you're being apologetic to a system that generally needs some work or you sort of want to make sure that you are you know, you're just trying to like be between too many different interest groups because you recognize it as a problem and that there is an obvious solution, but you're you're right now between too many different types of stakeholders. You know what I mean? Because the, some of the problems of, of of conflicts of interest in this industry occur um, not because uh, of transparency, but just because, like you said, like a retailer um, wants something, you guys want something, the brand wants something. And from a manufacturing perspective, they can't make everyone happy. So they would make everyone happy, but it becomes very difficult for them to know what to do. And there's no like clear answer, right? There is no clear answer. I'm not sure if I'm be apologizing for the industry as it is. Uh, I'm just trying to sort of explain a little bit of, you know, the multifaceted problems that we face when we, when we approach projects like this. Now, now, there's a there's a camp out there that says, you know what? Well, don't be stupid. You have orders, so you build another factory, mm-hmm. or you outsource mm-hmm. production, or something like that, or you you know you the market wants it. Don't be silly. Like, what about that camp of thought? I mean, it's it's a fair point to a point, but I mean, you can't click your fingers and establish a new manufacturing arm overnight, and you can't do that very quickly at all. And um, you know, Rolex released a statement recently, didn't they, about the the scarcity issue and how they uh, they said it was you know we we don't do it deliberately. We we refuse to compromise the quality of our watches, and at this point, we are working at full capacity to ensure everything that goes out is up to the standard that we expect. Every brand's gonna you know bang that drum um, until they have opened a new factory and it's operational and it's running. Uh, Which takes a long time. It takes a long time. Like it takes but they don't years. say any of this. No, They're just they quiet don't. about it. There's no communication about it. And they just intentionally leave it open-ended. And I think that's the problem. There's no one... The industry isn't even having a conversation with itself. Right. Well, that's what we're trying to do. And this is what I've been trying to do in, in the comments sections on, on Fratello it's since the launch of Anomalous. I'm like, well, look, there are... You, you all have points. Like, I understand that like people want like more watches, they want good watches, they want to be able to buy something that they that they like. They don't want to be like frozen out or forced to make a rash decision. And they shouldn't they shouldn't be forced to do that. And, and so, how has that been going? Have you been making any progress? Well, I, I think so. I think um some people uh, are very receptive to having a discussion and are, and are very happy to like have this a different insight because it seems like an easy problem to fix, right? On the surface it seems like a really easy problem to fix. And there are a lot of like nuances to it. A lot of nuances to the relationship and a lot of nuances to like your strategic planning for like a brand and for a media outlet like us. Like we we are not just working ad hoc, you know, everything is sort of mapped out before us for months or in some cases years. And um and I think people appreciate that openness. And I am being open about it. I'm trying to say, look, yeah, we we agree that this is frustrating for some people. So let's figure out how we can fix it together. 
and trying to come up with a business model, a revolutionary business model that works for both brands, retailers, and you know media outlets uh, or whoever else it is that's designing watches. So it sounds like you've now added politician to your list of job roles in the watch industry. Is that right? Yeah, I always had my eye on the top spot in British government, that's for sure. <laughs> you've been speaking to people everywhere and... Now consumers are something you've been speaking to more so when you were working, you know, writing on a blog to watch. You probably weren't spending as much time in the comment section. Now it seems to be a bigger part of your role to do that. You've talked to retailers, you've talked to watchmakers, talked to people at brands. Do you feel like you're 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 learning a lot about some missing sides of the equation now that you're sort of communi- communicating a lot more with the community directly? Yes, I I do feel that. Like I've always had a decent understanding of how how things work, but I had less understanding of how they were received. You know, I, I was I was I was in the background behind the scenes doing all this stuff and understanding like the mechanisms to bring watches to life, but I wasn't actually on the front line of buying myself because you know in the position I was in that was never never a concern. Yeah, I mean like we get so many watches in our hands all the time. We don't have like the need, but if you're like if you're just a layperson and you have to sit there with the same three watches all the time, yeah, you to- I totally get it. You're going to want to buy a new one like all the time. And this is an interesting thing because I-, I was always looking at how to how to build something like perfect like a watch, for example. I was thinking, "Oh, all these components fit together," but I wasn't appreciating the the way that these things are perceived from the outside as much as I should have been. Okay, yeah, of course, I knew that like we had to listen to the market and we had to listen to like the retailers and whatnot, but really the end consumer and the frustrations bubbling over and also understanding what they think about it. Because it's one thing to know that someone's annoyed or that someone feels something is lacking, but why is really the key. Asking why is always like um, the most important thing. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow-in-the-dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. So, Rob, after knowing you for this long, I have to say that I don't even know what your tastes are. Like, I know the watches you've worn. We've we've hung out and worn watches and talked watches so many times. But I don't really know how I would describe your taste. And I think before, I want you, I want you to describe it, but... I think it's interesting that we, you know, people can be watch buddies for a long time, have great conversations and still not really know what the other person likes or be able to describe it um, because that's not even necessarily part of it. You know, there's all these shared areas of appreciation, but what are some of the watches that you, you like? Talk a little bit about that. Well, my tastes have changed um, quite dramatically over my career when I was a young trainee watchmaker i was convinced that all watches should have a slim rose gold case a white dial and roman numerals and um, now i'm almost exactly what, what watch has that 
something like like an old Vacheron or something like a, I used to love like um uh, early, because that's very that's so highly specific. Well, early two thousand Breguets, like Blanc Pans, that kind of thing, Villaray. That, that oh, sort of thing. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. So that yeah, kind yeah. of real classic, elegant dress watch, and it was always rose gold that I was obsessed with as well. But now, if you look at my collection, rose gold, huh? I was a big time rose gold guy in my in my early twenties. Yeah, um, I don't know what happened to me since, but I got a, a blessed blow to the head, and now I'm all about steel. So my collection is almost entirely steel, uh, mostly sports watches and mostly dark dials. Strangely enough, it was only at the start of this year that I got my first blue dial, about sixty watches in, and um, then I developed a bit of a passion for green dials. But ultimately, what what defines my taste, I suppose, because it does look quite eclectic when you look into the box, is good design in a technical sense. Because, of course, taste and design aren't the same things, right? There's like, there are rules to design, um, layout rules, spacing, um, proportional things that really matter to me. Like, you can tell when a watch is well designed. It doesn't mean you have to like it, that's your taste. But you can, you can say, okay, this is not my thing, but I can see that it has like thought and like... Uh, yeah, you can you can appreciate that it's done nicely. It's just not for your taste, right? And I think that the majority of my collection, with a couple of notable exceptions, uh, follow that rule at least. If I were to design my perfect watch, I suppose I'm uh, I, I love dive watches um, and steel sports watches. Uh, I've a soft spot for chronographs as well. I have to say. No, no. Okay, so here's the thing. Mm-hmm. You are a very distinctive individual. I'm a distinctive individual, but just hearing your tastes sounds ultra generic. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. So I, I don't have... Is, 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 that, is that something to say about the hobby right now? Oh, I don't know about that. I think that there's, there's a reason why the things that are popular are popular, to be quite frank. Um, I... Don't think I ever fell too far outside like the the norm when it came to tastes. I mean, like I say, my tastes have shifted, but so too is the focus of the industry, and so too is what I've been exposed to. And um, you're, you're, I'll tell you what, because I've known you through a lot of different careers. Yeah, your tastes change with your job. You you are chameleon like. You know this. Yeah, true, true. And you you adopt a personality. You want to be a people pleaser. You start to wear the watches that the people around you want to see you wearing. That's an interesting take on it, and I don't think there's um, I don't think that's entirely untrue. It's certainly and you yeah. and you think of watches to impress them. I Meaning you're not just directly oh, no, listening no. to them, no, but you're literally true. wearing things that are meant to be like, oh, Rob, huh? Well, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't think I'm trying to shock anybody. I think I'm very, um, I'm very. Is that shocked? I could, I could sound a lot more shocked. <laughs> well, okay, I know you can say, yeah, okay, um, yeah, all right. Uh, Is that where they grab, they grab your wrist with their hands? <laughs> they, they say, oh I my must, goodness! I must see this on my body. <laughs> um, yeah, that that happens. Um, that happens more than I'd like to admit. But. Um, no, I don't consciously try and shock anybody or impress anybody. Like I, I choose my watches in the morning based on entirely how I'm feeling that day. And I sometimes wear one piece for a few days in a row, and sometimes I'll change my watch three times in a day. Uh, it's just it's all about how I feel. So um, yeah, I don't know. I I, I I never saw the need to define my taste, as it what, were. What, like, what's a pet? What's a couple of pet peeves that have persisted throughout your entire? 
like, you know, tenure in collecting? Because some pet peeves go away, you have taste, but like, what are some pet peeves that it's just like you still see it in a watch, just pisses you off and you just like, screw this thing, I want to throw it on the floor. I hate skeletonization on dials. I hate it. Any, 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 <laughs> See, I knew there was. I just, knew there was something. I just uh, knew it. Uh, I don't know how how profane I can be on on your podcast, but I would be like describing. Apple this. does. Apple is not fond of too much profanity. Okay, right. Well, I won't. I won't say exactly what I think about. But it, you want to hear a secret? I'm wearing a skeletonized dial right now. You disgust. No joke. No joke. Get off the air. This is awful. No, I, 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 I was just admiring. Shit. I was just like, this is a good skeletonized dial. You're a monster. You're a monster. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, what a coincidence, right? Okay, so skeletonization, uh, so what else? Worse, 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 worse than skeletonization. And I mean this wholeheartedly. It's open heart yeah. dials. They can take a running jump Ooh. off the nearest cliff. It's just so lame. It's like it's an so answer boring. to a question oh. that no one has ever asked, right? Right, exactly. Who was Who came up with that? I, someone, I think it who was it that tried to claim it the other day. Someone like uh, Chopard, not Chopard, who was it? Frederick Constant, yeah, I don't, the, the beating I don't know. And I was like, why are you telling me this as if like I should be happy about it? I'm like, they were obsessed with that for a while. Everyone, like everybody had that. So Jager had it and everyone had this thing where, Monstrous. so this is the thing. It's, it started with the tourbillon where you had a little hole in the dial and you can see the spinning tourbillon looked really cool. And then some people got the idea of, oh, well, what if you open up the dial to show other stuff that moves, not just the tourbillon? And this was the early 2000s, and most of it is awful. I, I have to agree. Some skeletonization can look amazing, but that's like okay. 5% of it. Okay. The rest of it is just, it's just it's jarring to the eye. It's like seeing a human without skin. Um, that is horrendous, but also I agree. Um, I... Uh... I have one watch in my collection that is, I would say, skeletonized. It's certainly an open dial. And that is the um, LCF 888 WH&T chronograph that I actually reviewed on a blog to watch, I think. I think it was okay. maybe that long ago. Um, and that is uh, a remarkable-looking thing. It looks like an AP concept, had a baby with a, hub- a hublo. Um, and it it's a was, weird image. It's a weird image. It's a weird watch, but it came from a really interesting place because it was a project run by a technical school in Switzerland. And the students designed and made this watch and brought it to market as part of their coursework. And I thought it was a fantastic scheme. It was That's a not, nice story. Oh, it was a brilliant story. And it was, it was a really, really heartening thing to read about, but it didn't do very well. And I guess the watch was a bit divisive. They had it priced at something like I think the retail was, I think, projected at four, but they were initially offering it at about 1800 And this thing had like a good grief. Who was it that made the movement now? It was either Concepto or Chrono. I can never remember which one it was, but it was a beautiful like seven. But it doesn't sound very expensive. No, it was, it's, it was the best value watch I've ever seen because they didn't do it for any, there's basically no profit. The project was running at a flat line. So they're giving it away. And, um, well, yeah, I've got it. I wear it rarely because it's it's quite big and quite specific. Um, it's not something you just throw on for a laugh. You know, you, you really know you're wearing it when you're wearing it. But my goodness, right. for that price, it was an absolute stunner. And that is the only one that I have in my collection. It's so tastefully done. And the movement is like dark gray with phenium plated. So like it's um, it's not very shouty. It's not very loud. It doesn't go all the way through the watch. You can't see my arm hair on the other side of it. But it um, it just it just shows like the workings on the dial side which has been very nicely decorated um in line with the design. okay what what else let's hear one one other pet peeve you have and then i'm going to share some of mine one other pet peeve 
unnecessary helium valves. <laughs> you know, like just it's like they're, they're, so he, all of them, all of them. Yeah, well, basically, yeah, basically. Like if a watch doesn't have a water resistance of at least five hundred meters, then it definitely shouldn't even be entering the conversation. And I wonder what goes on in these boardrooms or design uh, rooms when they're standing there around the, the drawing board, going, "Okay, uh, I think we're nearly there now. We just need one more thing." Oh, let's put a helium valve on the side of it. Okay, great. That's a great idea. That makes perfect sense for a dress watch. Let's stick a helium valve on there. Do you yeah, remember a while ago we did this thing where we just photoshopped the uh, helium uh, release valve off the Seamaster 300M? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was it was a master stroke. And I, I keep sort of like... I, not everyone... I, look, I understand. I like that element from a design perspective. I would never use it. I agree with you. If if if, if, the, if the industry stopped making helium release valves tomorrow, I, I wouldn't lose any sleep. I, uh, I I actually was coming up with a, an idea for a maker which uses a 300M without a helium valve. And I nicknamed it the 300M. So T-R-E-100M uh, because I got rid of the H and the E in the... Uh, well, now everybody yeah. knows what to buy next year. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah, yeah, well, I'd, I'd love that. I'd <laughs> love that. But, you know, we uh, we tend to focus on the Speedmaster rather than the Seamaster. So, you know, maybe one day in the future. You say you really can't focus on a Seamaster because this this undying loyalty to the uh, Speedmaster? Well, we have a... Is that a thing? I mean, it's not that we couldn't do it as well. But, you know, uh, the community is, is speedy-centric. What can I say? They they like that. That's the popular one. Is it is it weird to you how the internet has bred these hyper-focused communities where it's not just watch lovers? I wish it was just that. It's all these very narrow things like people that just like Speedmasters. Anything else from Omega? Not interested. Speedmaster? Anything? Sure. Or these people that are defined by a certain watch size, like 38 millimeter sport watches only. You know, <laughs> I know that the internet is all about finding your interest group, but it's so weird to me how it's manifested in the watch enthusiast community, isn't it? Well, I don't know if it's weird at all. I think it makes perfect sense and it follows. Like you say, the internet is a, a place for people to find their, their, their niche interests and find other like-minded folk. But, and, but no one is truly that narrow-minded. There's no one are. who's like, you know, there's no one who's like, all I need is a specific type of chronograph and I'll be happy forever buying slightly different variations of oh, it. Like, I disagree. It's not a real thing. Yeah, it is a real thing. There's whole huge groups full of people just like that. But they could just, they could get other watches and be like, uh-oh, I like other stuff too. Well, then all you have to do in your position is communicate to them why they should and maybe they'll change their mind. That's, That's literally what I've been doing for 15 years. And yet these people still exist and they definitely do exist. And those groups do exist. Well, they do exist and and it's where you get these hyper niche things like on Reddit and stuff like that. Like honestly, more power to them, but like it's just, it's fascinating to me that they can develop at all because it's so arbitrary. Well, I mean, maybe some of them are arbitrary, but I don't think all of them are arbitrary. I mean, watchmaking These people that are just in a one brand or one color or one type of complication or yeah, one type look, of this. Look, look, the whole thing, the whole industry is so intimidating when you stand, you know, before it, it's a behemoth of history and and reference numbers and these released countless, countless releases. Some people don't want to die. Do you, do you enjoy, have you ever felt better than someone because you know more about esoteric watch industry knowledge than them? I bet you, I bet that's once in a while, been a, a sensation you've endured. Uh, I, I don't know if I've ever really felt better than somebody because of it. I kind of feel, um, sometimes I, I self-reflect and feel a bit guilty about the amount of time I've spent um, thinking about watches when I perhaps should have been doing something 
else in the world. But uh, no, like I, what? I mean, you 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 very specifically focused on an industry that isn't developing microchips. You know what I mean? Like we're both smart people that have invested our time and effort into non-world saving, you know, leisure, yes, relaxation, fun and enjoyment, sure, but you know, I mean, we're not exactly the type of people that went into like innovation industries, let's put it that way. No, not at all. I mean, I'm a bit of a traditionalist and I'm a bit of a throwback, maybe more politically progressive than my hobbies would indicate, but you know, I'm a pretty old school kind of guy. But you know, there's two things, aren't there? There's survival and there's life, you know, living on top of just surviving. My brother, he works in surgery. And uh, I say, you you go keep them alive so I can help them how to live. You know, like that's, that's the way I look at it. Like uh, you don't, it is valuable to provide people with hobbies and interest and art and design and you know, that that enriches somebody's existence um, on planet Earth. So, uh, but it's like once or twice a year we do have to remind ourselves that we are doing something good for the world, right? Well, I, I think so. And like, I, is it as serious as saving lives? Of course, it's not. But it isn't as it isn't as trivial as some people would make it out. You know, I really hate pe- running into people and they go, "Oh, what do you do?" And I'm like, "Oh, I, I work in watchmaking. I write about watches." And they go, oh, "Watches? Who cares about watches?" And I think you think you're so clever, don't you? You like twerp. Like there are millions. Tell of people me that. Tell work. me that's never happened. That's never happened to me. That's happened to me countless times. People are like, uh, really? "Why do you need a watch? I've got a phone. Uh, I don't, I'm not into watches, thanks." And I'm like, "Okay, fine. You're not into watches. I'm not into phones." Like I have a phone to call people, but like I don't like obsess over the new. Well, iPhone you might need 13. a better response than I'm not into phones. Let's be honest. Well, yeah, I have plenty of responses, <laughs> but you told me that Apple <laughs> won't accept them on this podcast. But no, I just think it's embarrassing for people to like dismiss something that they clearly know nothing about, and I'm embarrassed for them. You know, like it's like I would never do that to somebody if I like was completely alien to their industry. The first thing I would do would be to ask questions about it to find out more, not deride them. Well, you've literally just lamented the fact that there's so much ignorance out there. And like, we just, you know, there's not much we can do about it. Like, ignorant people are going to be uh, threatened by things they don't understand. Like, that's pretty hard coded into human nature. Yeah, okay. I know there's nothing much we can do, but, you know, we try. You know, we try. We try and make it accessible. We write about All we can do is try to be good role models and be like, if you invested all this time and effort into learning whatever it is we know, Look at the great success. Look how awesome your wrist can look, or look how <laughs> look how proud your steps can be, or look how interesting you can be in the social circumstance. Like you have to live a way that demonstrates the benefits that come with being hyper obsessive into these weird industries. And I think that, you know, having interesting conversations about definitely having interesting things on your wrist to talk about. I mean, this is whole discussion about how wristwatches are just these great conversation pieces and they make pretty good conversation pieces. No one's ever had a conversation about a phone. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, I always used to say that I found watches to be the perfect blend of science and art. And I, I saw them as art for very many years. Maybe my definition of what constitutes art is changing somewhat, but there is no denying that they are absolutely fascinating. And when people have that, you know, just a little bit of patience and they want to, they want to find out about it. You, you can see their minds being blown that firstly, the industry still exists at all. Because if you're on the outside of it, you probably assume that the mechanical watchmaking industry isn't a thing anymore. Watchmakers exist. That used to that used to boggle people's minds when I told them I was a watchmaker. They're like, oh, I thought robots did that now. And I'm like, no, not really. Okay, you know what? I'm just realizing something. This conversation is showing our age a little bit. Uh, because yeah. <laughs> today... No, no, let me explain. Today... 
thanks in large part to rap music, um, your average teenager knows that high-end watches are a thing and probably knows enough to know they're not the same as smartwatches and things like that. So, yes, you're right. For a long period, what you're talking about would represent a lot of social conversations. But, like, the younger people now, now they get luxury watches. And you're seeing a shift in a way that's, well, at the very least, unpredictable. At least it was for me. Yeah, so what is going to happen there, then? Is is this kind of awareness of the ultra-high end and, like, the the maybe competitiveness of a lower bracket going to see the bottom part of the market disappear over time or shrink significantly? Well... This is the conclusion I've come to. Um, my belief is that smartwatches are going to proliferate to most consumers, mm-hmm. but they're not going to want to wear their smartwatch all the time. There's going to be 10 to 20% of the time where they're going to have some type of smartwatch fatigue, whether it's the notifications or the fact that it's tracking them. They're just going to be like, you know what? I don't want to wear it all the time. But because they have something on their wrist, they will feel a bit naked when there's something there, not there. Like it's like when you leave the house without a watch on, you know, you feel like naked, like, oh, there's something missing. And so this sensation is about to be amplified in a way that it hasn't been in several decades. And so in that 10 to 20% of the time when people don't want to wear their smartwatch, that's available real estate for something else. And so I think that's when people are going to say, I want to wear uh, an emotional watch or a status watch or an art watch or you know, whatever it is, a collectible watch. Okay. And so I think that the long term has this new segment, which is going to be very, very cozy for a luxury watch industry that's probably pretty big, not amazing, probably smaller than some of the, what we've seen in our lifetimes. But definitely there's going to be a slice of the market because people are going to be noticing watches because everyone has smartwatches. They're going to notice when you're not wearing the smartwatch and wearing something else and because you're going to feel naked um, when you don't wear anything else. So that's, I think, my sort of like, you know, midterm prognosis. I think that makes perfect sense. and But I think that if there's one portion of a, the watch market that is going to suffer, it will be the the more entry-level things, I think, the sort of um, brands around 1,000 to 2,000 or you know 500 to 2,000. I, I don't think so at all. I think what we've seen is this incredible resurgence at this price point where you can have originality, you can have small production volumes, you can have all kinds of great stuff. It used to be that you know your your $600 watch was just, boring and nothing special and yeah but you know yes there's not going to be a fashion watch market in the same way there there used to be right but it's it's going to exist and look if you wear a $300 smartwatch what do you want your leisure watch to be probably a little bit more expensive or if it's the exact same price it has to have just as much personality so i i actually think that it's not as as doomed okay. um i just think the market's going to change and I do think that, I mean, look, let's look at women's jewelry for a second. I think this is, for me, such an unbelievable anecdote that no one talks about. People say, no one, no one's going to buy watches because they don't need them. They don't need watches. They can, they can tell time a bunch of other ways. I'm like, Who okay, that granted. Was that Oscar the, I don't know. Oscar I don't know. You're right. It's a weird sound. <laughs> but with women's uh, items that they buy, most of it is merely a decorative or totemic um the shoes 
mostly impractical. A lot of the bags, you know, limited practicality depending on the bag. A lot, the jewelry, none of it has any utility of any kind. Forget telling the time. It doesn't do anything. It just sits there. So there's such a huge social acceptance of people buying things that do nothing, which are acceptance. Why would that spell doom for wristwatches? That's the thing for men. That's their jewelry. I don't think it spells doom at all. I just think that in certain price points, there will be a shift in, in purchasing behavior. But look at jewelry. It's successful <laughs> at all price points. Uh, true, but jewelry isn't uh, isn't going through the same shifts that watchmaking is. There's, there's no smart jewelry kicking around, is there? Oh, well, I mean, I suppose there are a couple of smart rings. What I'm saying is I think that for my – and this is just my perception of it. If I had a smart watch um, or an Apple watch, which I don't, but I think I will buy one soon, I would probably wear it on – my right wrist as just a device to use and continue to wear my watch on my left wrist. And I would want there to be a distinct difference between those two. I wouldn't want a $300 Apple watch and a $600 wrist watch. Like that to me is just not right. I would want a $300 watch and a 5k wrist watch, you know, because then there's a distinction between That's the two. spirit. That's the spirit. <laughs> That's how I feel. Like, so I just feel that, that to me, the entry level, because it's a bit too close in some ways, it's like, is it good enough? Well, what I'm saying is that there is still going to be a market. You speak from a position of being very comfortable spending luxury prices on luxury watches. Most consumers have to get to that point, if ever. You know what I mean? Like for a lot of consumers, like 500, 600 bucks on a wristwatch, that is luxury. Yeah, fair enough. It took me a long time to get there. And it's every time you sort of up your, you know, top limit of what you're comfortable spending, you go through like a bit of an existential shift. It's a very strange process because I used to be in that, that ballpark as well. When I, was, I mean, I, I remember realizing I lived in a, bottle, a bubble when I like, there's like a watch for like 350000 like, no, that sounds like a very good value if you really yeah. know what goes into it. Like, I'm like, what are you talking yeah, about? Like, I have said sound- ridiculous things like that as well. It is not <laughs> like people from the outside think that we are complete loons. And I think we are actually. <laughs> like, oh, well, that's, that's value. That is value. I'll take two, please. Obviously, we're not buying look, two. We're, you know. we're, we're art lovers. We appreciate technique, human effort, ingenuity. We have a, a great appreciation of her understandings and all that go into that. I mean, society has value from people like us and we fetishize these objects and the stories connected to them and how they relate to our assembly of the world. Uh, it's a very common condition and we, we have to support this. This creates you know, the culture and the fantasies and the stories that that motivate us to do new things. I mean, you know, you were talking about these investors earlier and how they have no imagination. Well, these types of stories and fantasy creates the imagination that gets them to take any risk at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, you know, we are very crucial because, you know, you laugh about, you know, my robotic this, my robotic that. At the end of the day, <laughs> I'm doing nothing robotic because I'm, I'm, I'm sampling taste. I'm always looking at something and asking myself, how does it make me feel? And then do I examine why it makes me feel that way? But that's, that's the least robot thing in the world, right? Yeah, right. I mean, it is, you, can't, you can't love this industry and not like have that fire inside you for the, for the watchers themselves. One more question, then we're out of time. You've spent all this, uh, all this experience, you know, in in the watch industry. And the watch industry is really just about got to sell this item to the end consumer. Now you're starting to have a little bit of say in in the design of watches and things like that, and a lot of responsibility. I've been there myself. I know what it feels like. Mm. I think the question is: Do you feel that all your time 
making watches, selling watches, writing about watches, dealing with marketing, has given you any really good preparation to, to create a sellable product or is it actually some other skill that's necessary? It's all been valuable, that's for sure. And I find myself um, making decisions or taking projects in certain directions because of the strangest experiences that I had that I never thought would have been relevant to, to this kind of thing. But I have to say, on top of all of that, it, it takes something else. Um, it, it, it's something that's always been in me. And I've always known that, like, you know, designing or, like, making modifications to certain watches is something that I'd be very comfortable and very happy doing. It's a bit of a, a flair thing, you know? And um, I'm just, I feel like I'm quite lucky because I have, like, the experience and I have the passion and I feel like I can see some things that would just, oh, that'd be clearly better. Or we'll do it this way, we'll do it that way. And then most of the time, fortunately so far, it's born out to be correct. I mean, I, I could be cruising for a bruising, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm, I might make an absolute uh, hash of the next project, but I'm, I'm still confident that, it, you know, everything we do will, will be good because it comes from a good place. That's the most important thing. Now, okay. I, I mean, I guess that's, that's as good of an answer as any. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a lot of guesswork and hoping, um, and you never really know how people are going are going to react to things. Do you feel that the community knows what they want? I I feel that, and this is where I think that I have a lot of interesting questions. Is communities are definitely happy to give you their opinion, but. I don't know that they could have always told you what they wanted to buy in advance of them actually seeing it. And so it's definitely important for brands to listen to the communities for sure. But to make product design decisions based upon that, I'm not sure that's always a good idea. No, I think it's, I think it's terrible. But I'll tell you what I do think you can get from the community. And I think this is really bankable. I think you can know what they don't want. Now, that is more useful to you as a designer than what they do. Because... As a brand or as a designer, you have a responsibility to the people that you're designing for to lead them in the direction. You make the decision. Like design is is not um, something, okay, behind the scenes, it happens by committee. In some cases, you have multiple people working on the same project, but you don't open it up to everybody and say, oh, tell us what you want, because you'll never get a cohesive message. And as a designer, you have to send a <laughs> cohesive message, right? You with me? You know what I'm saying? Look, I mean... I remember back in college studying research methods and there was all these studies over the years of people who would ask surveys and questionnaires and polls and things like that to people. And they found that, you know, again, people are not robots. You can't ask for like them to perform a process and them to give you the exact answer. Like when you ask people like, what do you want? What do you like? There's all kinds of weird reasons that they would answer in all these different ways. Sometimes people just don't really know. They don't know themselves very well. Right. So I'm a big fan of the observational method, like I think you're trying to advocate for. And I really encourage brands not to take an overly high amount of stock in what people say, because there's no. always something to learn from it. But I wouldn't take anyone, you know, I, w I would take what people say with a bit of a grain of salt, let's put it that way. You know what I really hate? And you can add this to the list with like skeleton dials and open heart dials. Okay, and yeah, what is it? I really hate configurators. You know, I hate brands giving too much choice to the audience. Now, that might sound like contradictory considering I'm like all about listening to the audience. But I think that shows that a brand doesn't know what to do 
It doesn't know what message it's trying to send. It's like, oh, well, we've got all these elements that could be cobbled together into a decent brand, but hey, we're not going to do the They're last like, thing. We understand you want to buy something, yes? Yes, okay, what would you like? <laughs> we make it for you. It's like, no, come on, man. Like, it's your responsibility. You are designers. You are, you've got to lead the conversation. And you've got to take your lumps when you get it wrong. And that's all right. You know, you can make missteps, but when you hand it but over... But that's the thing. There's no... <laughs> I hate this idea of wrong because this goes back to this investment thing. If you make a good-looking watch, you're never wrong. And why are you wrong if it just doesn't happen to meet its buyers by the moment it's launched? Well, wrong is that's just not wrong, wrong either. I mean, okay, they, they no, but, but that's the things they say. They're like, you know, it, there's there's this obsession with things selling out right away, which is just terrifyingly bad for creativity just terrifyingly bad and i've come to the conclusion after the experiences that we've had this year that it's not a good thing for communities either like um people like are excited by the watches but they want watches they just want to hold things they want to get the watch they like on their wrists and uh it's not as simple as that it's never nothing that is ever simple but like we've got to find a way to make it happen brands have got to be bold and they've got to they've got to evolve now, this is a common theme that I've seen in the show, and then we gotta we gotta close out. That brands or someone like that just has to take more risk. Da 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 da. I've heard this from so many people on the show. I've said it constantly. I've written about it all the time. Yeah. The people who are in the position to take that risk when they're being told, um, you know, sir or madam, uh, you should probably take more risk. What is the what is the response? Why do they routinely say no? Well, you know what what I found, and um, it, it, it drives me mad a little bit. Um, they they sidestep the question. They never answer it. It's like um, it's just uh, they're allergic to it, or but it's almost like it just goes one ear and come out the other. Like when they're challenged on something that seems big and scary, then they're just like, um, yeah, no, we won't do that. And it's like, but why? You know, like I say, why is always the most important question. Why? Are you turning your attention away from something that could be massive, like a huge story for the industry? Like, no, yeah, we, don't, we don't do that. I know you haven't done that, but why can't you do that? And some people, maybe you, maybe me, maybe some other um, people in our positions need to push this issue and need to keep asking and need to find some brands to be bold, to like lead the charge. And then we might see something happen then. But I mean, it takes time, doesn't it? Like we said at the, at the top of the show, everything takes time. Well, on that note, with Rob's encouragement for the industry to be even bolder than ever, um, Rob, thank you so much. Uh, you can find m more of Rob Nudd's work at Fratello.com. Uh, Rob, we'll have to have you back on the show again to talk some more. We have so many stories from the blog to watch <laughs> days to all kinds of things we've done together. Um, but this was a really good first chat. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? 